71 in your rebuttal. Just then, the lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all of your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came into the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took him out to Demaris, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will pay, repay you whatever more you spend. year of searching and having to do our interviews over the internet, we are so pleased to be presenting Zach Martin as our settled minister candidate. Zach is a May 2020 graduate of Christian Theological Seminary in Indianapolis, Indiana. Zach earned a Master's of Theological Studies and a Master's of Divinity. Please open your hearts and welcome him to Carlisle Christian Church.
I am from Decatur, Illinois. That's my hometown. My father works at Central Christian Church there as the music minister, and that is where my family has been for the past 20 years. Um, that's where I have been quarantining. Um, and I think you're caught up, because that's really, that's, that's life right now. That's, it's quarantine, and it's uh, preparing to, to be with you this morning. And I'm blessed to be here. Now, we've just heard the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the parable of the Good Samaritan can be, I think, a rather tricky passage to preach to. Because when a congregation hears the story of the Good Samaritan, read from the scripture, they tend to think that they're pretty sure they know what they're in for in the sermon going forward, because it is such a well-known story. Many of us, especially those of us who have attended church uh, throughout our lives, know the details of this story almost by heart. And it is almost it's such a common story in our culture that it is, it is ubiquitous. People know what is meant when they hear the term Good Samaritan. It's shorthand these days. Shorthand for someone who seemingly goes out of their way to do a good deed for someone else. We can count on hearing these Good Samaritan stories from people in, in conversations. We can count on seeing Good Samaritan stories posted to people's Facebook pages. And we can count on hearing Good Samaritan stories at the end of local news broadcasts, usually put in there to lift our spirits after hearing the rest of the news. Stories like, local Good Samaritan gets cat out of a tree, or local Good Samaritan donates thousands of dollars to local food pantry. Things like that. The fact is, the story is so well known that even those who have not heard the story told regularly in Sunday school or in church throughout their lives, even these people could recount the story for you, or at least do a pretty close approximation of what the story is. They might say a, a man was traveling along the road, he got robbed and he was beaten. Uh, no one helped him except the Samaritan, I think. It would be a simplified version, to be sure, but we would all know what they were trying to get at, what they were trying to tell us. And we would still be able to see the outline of Jesus' story. And we would know which of these men, which of these three passers-by, Jesus would want us to imitate. Spoiler alert, that would be the Samaritan. <laughs> Jesus wants us to emulate the one who stops and helps. And we can guess as much, because when Jesus tells this story, as we heard it today in Luke chapter 10, he doesn't hide the ball from us. He is clear in his meaning. In fact, he says with a clear and concise directive, he tells people, after hearing the story of the Good Samaritan, he tells people to go and do likewise. And that is the kind of clear direction that we love to hear from our Bible stories. It's the kind of clarity we wish we heard more of, as a matter of fact, because Jesus says straight up, follow the example of the Samaritan. Care for those in need, no matter who they are, 
no matter what your social roles are, no matter what circumstances you find yourself or that person in. We should care for people as the Samaritan did. That's it. Amen? The end. Clear the sanctuary. Go to lunch. Take your nap. <laughs> what else is there to say? Well, the parable of the Good Samaritan continues to be preached to this day. So even though everyone knows the message and the moral of the story, there must be more left to say. There must still be a need to hear these words. Because indeed when we hear something so many times that we can recite it by heart, we begin to forget some of the details. We begin to take for granted certain parts of the story. And we seem to forget sometimes the parts of the story that made it impactful and important to us in the first place. When we hear a story so many times we can recite it by heart, we begin to feel an ownership over it, which is fine. We begin to see ourselves in the familiar places of the story, which is also good, but we must be aware that when we do this, when we identify ourselves in the story, where we are seeing ourselves in the story has a lot to do with what we think there is to say about the story. Where we see ourselves in the story affects what we do in response to hearing the story, such as what questions we might ask about the story, or whether, they, whether we think there is any commentary necessary at all. Where we see ourselves in these stories affects what we do after we hear the story. Now in this story from the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' reasons for telling the parable are in response to the questions posed by the lawyer. The lawyer wants to know how to inherit eternal life. So when it comes to seeing ourselves in the story, I think many of us could identify with the lawyer. Right, we can relate to someone who is seeking answers from Jesus. We understand the feeling of looking out at a conflicted and confusing world and wanting to ask, in all of this, what should I do? Who is my neighbor? What must I do to inherit the eternal reward? However, no matter how much we see ourselves in this aspect of the lawyer's character, we must stay aware that if we ask the question, who is my neighbor, there, there is an implication in that question. That question implies that there must be someone out there who is not my neighbor. And so we ask, who is my neighbor? By asking this question, the lawyer hopes to get a clear, and concise picture of what is expected of him in his life of faith. Knowing the answer to this question, who is my neighbor, will help the lawyer to create clear boundaries for himself and expectations for which to strive. And I think we all look for things like that in our life of faith, don't we? We like to set expectations. We like to know what we are to do. We like to know where the boundaries exist around our lives. It is comforting and gives us something to 
strive for. But Jesus tells this story to illustrate how a good neighbor should act. He tells the story in this way to present to us the three men on the road and to show us which one of them acted as a neighbor to the man who was injured by the side of the road. Jesus tells the story to answer the question of the lawyer, a man who, by the way, knew the answer to his initial question. He knew that the answer to how should I inherit eternal life was, he knew that the answer was to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. He knew this because he was an educated and presumably well-read man. And as such, Jesus asked him to respond by telling him what was written in the law, what was written in his Jewish tradition. And so Jesus acknowledges that the lawyer gives the correct answer by telling him, do this and you will live. And that's simple enough, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. There's the lawyer's answer. There's our answer. Jesus has spoken. Tighten your sandals, dust off your robes, and start walking to the next town. What else is there to say? Well, apparently there is a good parable's worth left to say. Jesus tells us the parable of the Good Samaritan to answer the question, who is my neighbor? Which is a question, a follow-up question from the lawyer, meant to push the limits of what neighborliness means, meant to continue to give himself expectations and boundaries on what is expected of him. But Jesus tells this parable to illustrate and emphasize for the lawyer and for us that there are no limits, no clear boundaries to what and who can be a neighbor. Jesus tells the lawyer this story because it is not enough to know the answer. It is not enough to have the knowledge, and it is not enough to know exactly how to respond to our questions of faith. For instance, I'm an educated guy, I recently graduated seminary, and all goes well, I'm on the path to ordination. And at that point, with those achievements and credentials by my name, what else is there for me to say? I know the answers. Well, Jesus' answer to that kind of assumption is found in the story, in the characters of the priest and the Levite, both religious men teachers, and ordained people. In that way, I can see myself in those characters, and perhaps some of you do as well, because these men were possessors of the knowledge of their faith. They were men who knew the answers to life's big questions. But even they, in those positions, even they did not recognize their neighbor in this man beaten by the side of the road. And a possible answer for that lack of action on their part is that at the time there were concerns for priests or for Levites, concerns of purity and impurity, 
And to touch the impure body of a dead man would mark either the priest or the Levite as impure themselves, which would make it difficult, if not impossible, for them to carry out their religious function. People in their positions could not risk such impurity. Those were the rules. That's how the job got done. They had to keep moving. What else is there for them to say? Well, these are the same kind of boundaries that I think we can encounter even today. Even though we have good hearts, and even though we have all the right knowledge, sometimes there are just things we can't do, right? For instance, if I pass a homeless and hungry person on the street in my hometown of Decatur, chances are, in this increasingly, I'm not carrying any money on me at the time, so I have nothing to give to this person. What else is there for me to say? Or I might remember that the man who runs the local homeless shelter has told us that it is best not to give these people handouts, that there are better ways to help them, and so I, I'll just keep moving. There's nothing else to say. Perhaps I'm just trying to practice good social distancing. I can't get too close to someone right now. You don't know if they're infected. You don't know where they've been. I need to keep my distance and keep moving. What else is there to say? Maybe it's as simple as the light at the intersection just turned green, and I have cars lined up behind me, and I need to get moving. I can't stop and talk. What else is there to say? And these are just some of the practical reasons we might have for moving along in that situation. It, has nothing to, it says nothing about the sorts of boundaries we set up based on our, our beliefs and our experiences. But those are important parts of our lives, and especially our lives of faith. And so we have to listen to them, right? What else is there to say if we don't? Now, luckily, this is a Jesus story. And in the Jesus story, there is always something else to say. In a Jesus story, we are reminded that our prejudices and our perceived limitations do not have the last word. There is always more to say. And so, Jesus introduces us to the character of the Samaritan. The Samaritan is an outsider. The Samaritan is the person that Jesus' Jewish audience would have found the least relatable. They would not have connected to this character because the Samaritan was someone who wouldn't and shouldn't have had anything to do with the Israelite man lying near death on the side of the road. He was a Samaritan and that man was an Israelite. What else is there to say? And yet, the Samaritan was the one who stopped and helped him. Not only that, he took him to an inn. He cared for him at that inn. And then when it was time for him to leave, he paid the innkeeper to continue looking after that man as long as was necessary. There were several occasions and several reasons that the Samaritan could have moved along, could have passed right on by saying, what else is there for me to say? But he did not. He continued to help the injured man to the best of his ability. In the person of the Good Samaritan, Jesus shows us that no question, no answer, 
No boundaries can put limits on the care that we are called to give to God's creation. And there is one more character in this story. One more character about whom we could ask ourselves, what more is there to say? And that would be the man who found himself on the side of the road. The man who was beaten and robbed and left for dead. That man doesn't say anything. Those who are in need of a good neighbor often don't say anything. Or they can't say anything. Because there is a privilege in being like the lawyer. The lawyer who asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? There is a privilege in being able to ask that question. To being able to decide who our neighbor might be. But for those who are like the man injured on the side of the road, they don't have that privilege. They can say nothing, they cannot speak for themselves, and their struggles are not always on our radar, and yet these are the people that we must look for and listen for. Carefully and prayerfully, we must listen for those moments when people are asking, who is my neighbor? Who will listen? Who will help me when I cannot help myself? We must listen for those people who are crying out, my life has become so hard, and I don't know what else to say except someone please help. We should listen carefully for this, but it is not hard to find these people. We see them often. When people are traveling a dangerous road to get, for a better, to get to a better life, those people might ask, who is my neighbor? When people are assaulted and hurt, when they are oppressed, they might cry out, who is my neighbor? When people are feeling abandoned and alone and they see the world passing them by, we might hear them call out, who is my neighbor? Now, the lawyer from earlier in the passage has an answer for that question as well. He knows that the neighbor is the one who had mercy, the one who stopped and helped that helpless, injured man. The neighbor is the one who has mercy on the stranger. And yet, too often, those who are in need of a neighbor, those looking for help from a neighbor in this difficult world, those who are asking, who will have mercy? Too often, these are the people that hear responses like, well, you shouldn't have traveled such a dangerous road. What more is there to say? Or they hear, I can't help right now. I don't want to make myself impure. What else is there to say? Or they hear, I don't have time to help. I have my own needs and concerns to see to. What else is there to say? Well, perhaps there is nothing left to say. Maybe there is nothing else to say. Maybe there is no smart, wise answer to give to this question. And, in fact, the story of the Good Samaritan shows us this, because in the story of the Good Samaritan, it is the actions of the Samaritan that show us the way of neighborliness. Not his words, not his beliefs, not his knowledge. It was his acts of mercy that made him an exemplary neighbor. And it was those actions that made it clear that the Samaritan was someone who viewed all people as his neighbor. 
So with that in mind, I guess there is nothing left to say. When our neighbors need our help, there is nothing left to say. Because we know this story well. We have heard it. It's in our culture. It's on our news. We know the story. We, need, we know the boundaries and the expectations are set. And we also know that Jesus never lets any of those things have the final word. Jesus always has more to say. And so we are given this example, this beautiful example of neighborliness in the Good Samaritan that Jesus wants us to follow. Because I say again, there is nothing left to say. All there is to do now is to clear the sanctuary, go get lunch, take your afternoon nap, and then go and do likewise.